Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Jack Witsit, Senior Strategist at EnergySec. We discuss the ways in which language can either divide or unite people and organizations, the illusion of control when it comes to security, and how any model or framework for security must include people in order to have any chance of success. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So I want to start with some questions I always ask everybody, every poor victim of my podcast here. Um, there's two of them. So the first one is, how, how did you get into this field? How did you get into security? You know, it's funny. I, I've been doing this literally my whole life. I grew up on the beach. I was building sandcastles to keep out the tide, um, you know, doing futile level dis- futile defense work, uh, literally since I was a child. Um, I taught myself to program when I was nine. I lived with a bunch of like hacker security types for a few months when I was 17. And so it's just something that's been part of my entire life, honestly. Um, formally, I got into the field. I started doing some open source um, honeypot sort of development work um, on the defensive side and kind of rolled that into a professional uh, career over time. That's unusual. I didn't think sandcastles would be a, uh, a good gateway drug to working in security? Well, you know, you're never going to keep the tide out. It's a lot of work. You know, you screw up once. It feels a lot like security today. So um, I've had a defensive perspective um, really my whole life. Oh, that's excellent. We'll, we'll come back to that, uh, that defensive perspective um, in a minute and, and some of those metaphors. The, the other question is, what's your security superpower? My security superpower is, is sort of reverse entanglement. Um, I like taking jump old messes, um, looking for patterns, changing assumptions. Um, It's looking at how the world seems to be and reframing it into a more maybe productive and positive path forward to solutions. Um, I I teach people with saws and hammers and screwdrivers what a house looks like. So kind of big picture, putting things together and and making things more effective. So saws, the people who show up with saws and hammers and don't know what a house looks like, um, is I mean, do you feel like that's another good metaphor for what the security industry is currently is currently experiencing? I, I think it's a great metaphor. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people with solutions, and you know, it's I don't think what the actual problem space is has been very well defined yet. Um, it's definitely we've figured out how tactics work. We figured out maybe how to hold the line, but I don't think we know how to work together what the big picture looks like for making the world more of a safer and secure place overall. There's a lot of context that I think exists outside of information security as a sort of as a practice domain that we haven't um, really gotten consensus on yet. You know, the, the the saws and hammers and screwdrivers metaphor came from a conversation I had with, you know, a bunch of representatives of one of our critical infrastructure industries. They wanted to know which risk management framework to use from the government and and all the different government agencies described the risk management frameworks and industry turned around and said, well, that's all great, but which one do we use? And government said, all of them. And nobody had any idea how to relate one type of risk management, which was looking at where your controls are placed to another kind of risk management, looking at large-scale business strategy. They all had different tools, but they didn't know how they related to each other to solve the problem because absolutely no one in that room, and there's about 30 people in that room from all over industry and government, had taken the time to spell out what the problem was that they're actually solving in, in terms that you can create solutions or create success criteria. 
I want to like when you talk about terms there, and and you use the word, you use, I think you use the word context earlier. Um, and that could be well, somebody could look at that and think of that as like technical terms, right? We're not using the right the same technical terms, but I mean, really, what you're talking about is is language, right? What kinds of language people are using? I think language is a huge, huge part of our cybersecurity problem space right now. Um, you know, you can get people in the room and say, and and, I'm, and I don't mean to stick to risk management. This is applied in a, a bunch of different ways, but you can stick a bunch of people in a room and say risk management for, and I've seen it happen for up to a year where they're trying to solve a problem, and because they're using the same words, but meaning different things. They're, they're not actually effectively making their world a better place. Um, you know, cyber versus information security is something I talk about a lot. Um, when you look at, it's unhelpful to say, well, that word doesn't mean what you think it does. And to, and, and to kind of like ostracize that, that set of thinking from your worldview. In my mind, it's more helpful to look how people are using terms, look at what their roles and responsibilities are, and try and understand what it is they're saying from the context that they're coming from. You know, if a bunch of lawyers say cybersecurity, they might not mean what we think of as information security. They might be focused on, you know, what are the contractual or legal implications of somebody getting into a network. And that's a very, very valid and important part of your risk posture, even if it's not classically information security. Um, you know, conversely, if, if you're talking about risk as an information security professional, you know, you might be meaning, hey, hey, somebody could get into my network today. Whereas risk to a C, you know, a CFO might mean something completely different. And so if we're really to make progress, um, I think we need to spend a lot more time um, understanding what we mean in our own roles and in our, our own scopes. Um, you know, if it's just one person or two people or 10 people in a business, you know, that's not a huge deal. We can all kind of figure out what we're talking about. But cybersecurity is this massive social, cultural, industry, government problem space. And there's lots and lots and lots of people and perspectives um, trying to work through it. If, if we can't socialize common language and figure out what the big picture looks like, um, then we're going to have a tough time making progress. Talk to me a little bit more about what you mean by socializing common language. I mean, you, you know, a lot of people in this industry are, are, you know, are probably thinking to themselves, well, I wasn't a linguistics major in college. I don't know anything about this. Like, how do I possibly, how do I possibly start with this? I think part of that is, is listening and, and, you know, not, not, not just, you know, providing your own domain knowledge, but listening for what kind of levers the people that you're communicating with have at their disposal. You know, we talk about, you know, the NIST cybersecurity framework is supposed to speak better to, you know, cyber or excuse me, to business executives. And what it did was it simplified the language. Like it's, it's very easy to read and understand what it says, but it didn't provide any additional levers for a CEO or for CFO whole, you know, it just kind of assumed fun, better security. It provided no guidance or insight into what else they in their own roles can do. And so we don't have to be a linguistics major to understand what jobs people have or what their scope of influence and understanding is. And so when we're trying to communicate, we need to understand what people can do in their own space and speak to that. Um, and the other side is that, you know, very, very traditionally, we look at information security as something by and large that 
that is centered in, you know, the maybe the CISO's office or something like that, whereas maybe users have to be more aware and, you know, maybe there has to be better funding for your information security department. But we don't spend a lot of time going, how can the rest, how does the rest of the business create risk? What can we do to make their lives easier? Uh, one of the questions I like to ask and this helps with both terminology and linguistics and reframing the problem is if, if your if your business or if your organization doesn't didn't have an information security department, what would it have to do? Who who what would be the responsibilities across the organization to to secure your networks, to secure your business? And there's a huge distinction um, or an important linguistic distinction between securing your network and securing your business. You know, when we talk about language, a CFO or CEO, they're in, they don't care about their network. They really don't. And nor nor should they. They want to keep producing the value they want to produce for the costs you know they're willing to invest in it. And so, what you talk about as an information security professional should be focused on helping them produce that value. Whether or not somebody can get into your network on a Tuesday at 5 p.m. is potentially tangential to their worldview and towards the language that they use and the things that they care about. And, I mean, the thing that strikes me is, I mean, language carries with it a certain degree of tribalism too, right? Um, and, and familiarity of, of your environment, right? You have a, if, you, if you have a shared language with somebody, you have a lot more perceived control, perhaps, over what you, what you, what you two can do together. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, I think you can even see, um, and, and not everybody will agree with me on this, but certainly I think a useful example, I think you can see that in the use of the word zero day for a long time. You know, when we're talking about zero day vulnerabilities, there, there were things that the, the good vulnerabilities that the good guys weren't really aware of yet that were potentially being exploited in the wild. But certainly things that, you know, as defenders, we, we just didn't know were out there. And once we kind of knew it was out there, it was out there, it, you know, the, the, the clock started counting. More and more, um, as as the security industry developed, you started to see zero day mean something slightly different, which was um, vulnerabilities that haven't been patched yet. That's a real subtle but important difference because when you're talking about vulnerabilities that haven't been patched yet, you're sort of not explicitly acknowledging the fact that there's vulnerabilities that you don't know about um, running around out there. And so zero days became something that you could control, something you could do something about. All right, there's, we heard about this vulnerability and there's no patch, so we have to put some sort of defensive measures in place for it. And that simple terminology change, you know, if you're familiar with the history and you're really familiar with the security space, maybe not a big difference. But if you're new to the space or maybe not, you know, a deep expert in it, that little language change sort of excludes things from your worldview and from the, the, your acknowledgement of, of the actions you need to take um, that are actually out of your control. And I wonder sometimes if that evolution happened um, because the things we didn't know about were out of our control. Okay, so you, you mentioned things outside of your control in that in the context of, of language and those and those really subtle language shifts and. And control was something I wanted to to also talk about um, because I think as technicians, as people working in technical fields, it, it is very easy to often develop, especially if you're at a high level of expertise, a sense that you can you might have a lot of control over things. Um, and and it strikes me that in as as the software systems in particular that we we continue to build become more and more complex. Um, you know, not only do we not have control over those systems in a way that we might used to have, but, uh, you know, alluding to things you just described, especially with security, there's so many other contributing people and factors, especially people, 
that that the notion of really having any control strikes me as probably um, problematic. I guess we'll leave it at that. What do you think? I think you're I think you're exactly right. I, I think, and and I'm going to exaggerate a little bit here to make a point, but I, I philosophically, to, to a large extent, actually believe this. But to some extent, um, information security is a symptom. It's an outcome of a larger problem as opposed to a causal factor. You know. As information security professionals, by and large, we don't control our budget. Um, exposure, um, the, the kind of exposure to cybersecurity risk that we face is created largely outside of our span of influence. You know, the business does the things the business is going to do, and we can educate them and talk to them, but it's really not our under our responsibility for the most part, unless we're lucky enough to have some sort of chief risk officer that gets cyber. And so we, and then on the other side, you have kind of your threat actors who are exist largely outside your span of control. Your, your funding your, comes from someone else. Your constraints on what you're allowed to do come from someone else. The environment in which you're securing comes from someone else. Your directives come from someone else. Your risks come from someone somewhere else. And so there's a great deal of your world that you simply don't control for. You're, as an information security professional, to some extent, I think you're an error handler. You're not responsible for overall system stability of the organization. You're there to catch some of the exceptions. And that's maybe even proactively the best that we can do within our traditional span of influence. If we really want to be secure, there's lots of things that happen outside of information security um, that need to be fixed. You talk about tribalism and culture and, you know, the, the cultural way that organizations handle risk management and risk appetite changes from business to business. And that impacts the type of decisions that they make, which creates the kind of exposure that we are willing to secure or that we have to secure. Um, so I, I think we have much less control than we think we do um, over the security um, of our environment. I think in, unless we begin offloading it into the rest of the business in a much more substantial and meaningful way than we have in the past, as we add lines of code, as we add complexity, as we add connectivity, and as we add consequence, um, as all of that escalates, it's going to be increasingly hard to even look like we're doing a particularly good job of keeping things secure and stable. It, it, the decisions that impact security state have to be managed by the business. They can't just rely on information security to do it. Um, interestingly, I think we can see this control issue in the types of common practices that we've developed. You know, back in the day, we, you know, the internet really wasn't connected to anything too important. There's a bunch of really highly technical people who are really interested in it and they started seeing, you know, security problems, but nobody really cared and they didn't have the budget or the funding or the investment um, or, or even the political capital to do much about it. And so we started seeing information security practices develop out of our own span of influence, as opposed to maybe what the best practice would be for an organization to do who is fully invested in cybersecurity as something they cared about. We developed practices that we as IT or technical people could accomplish within our own roles. Um, interestingly, you know, as time went on, the consequences started to escalate started seeing automated worms, you know, that our common practices turned into best practices, they turned into an industry, they turned into practices that are sold. And now we have sort of an entrenched tribalism and entrenched language and entrenched culture that says that cybersecurity is something that happens at a technical level, or at least happens within an information security department. It's very, very hard at this point to have a conversation with most 
organizations that says, actually, the way you do business is a bigger drive of your cybersecurity posture, the types of people you partner with, your how you do vendor support, how you procure equipment and software, all of those things um, are things that we can, as information security professionals and defenders, educate you about, but they're not within our control. And so what the dialogue we need to have at this stage is what else does everybody need to be doing outside of our classical common practices? Because by themselves, they don't really control for our environment. They just handle errors and they handle exceptions as, as best we can. Um, it's, I mean, and it strikes I, me that you're, I mean, what you're talking about in a weird way is, a, well, not in a weird way, is a distributed system. It's just we normally think of distributed systems only in the context of computers. But there's, there's really no right. such thing as a distributed system with just computers and no humans, right? No, and, and, and that's actually a really important point. Like, computers don't do anything that... that people haven't told them what to do on some level. It's not directly, it, it's an emergent outcome. So there, there are no security states that exist that, that aren't the result of a set of authorized decisions made by people in authorized roles um, somewhere on a timeline. And so if, if you look at, th- let's apply the concept of threat modeling uh, to what we're talking about. You know, we, we're, Microsoft is great threat modeling process for applications and for software, but that's not really what the system is. The system is a bunch of people collaborating to produce value. And they somewhere in the middle between person A and person B is some technology. Unless you include the people and how they behave, the decisions they make, what their psychological constraints are, what their cultural constraints are, their political, their legal constraints um, are in that in that conversation, in that threat model, then you're not really actually modeling the security state or the threats to your system. You're only modeling a piece of it. And there's only so far you can go in defending that when, when you limit your scope like that. And this becomes a really hard conversation very fast because it stops being, hey, how do we you know, configure you know, Windows or Linux on our network? It becomes, hey, we have to change how our business does business. And that's something that we runs into immediate cultural problems, immediate legal problems, immediate political problems. You know, if, if you're a critical infrastructure industry and you're working with government to collaborate on information sharing and securing yourselves with best practices, it's one thing to say, yeah, we'll partner with government on, with our regulator on improving how we do, you know, IT or control system security. It's a very, very different thing for them to talk to government and say, hey, we have to have a conversation about how we make money with our regulator. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. that stops being fun and games real fast for everybody. And, but that's, that's how the system is set up. That's the system we're trying to secure. It's a human technology system, not a technology system. And there was something you said in there, at least it just, it sparked something in my mind. We're, we're going to have another uh, podcast at some point in the future here with Mark Goodman, who's the author of a book called Future Crimes. And, and he talks a lot about applying like an epidemiological model to this, um, which I think is fascinating. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff or you're familiar with that. I haven't read it. I've, I've heard I've heard various models uh, discussed. Um, I think one of, and it's interesting because this is, uh, you know, I think we talk about being defenders and, and that's valid in sort of an incident management standpoint, right? We're trying to keep incidents down. We're trying to respond to incidents. But if you look at us collectively, the model I'd like to use is a siege. You know, um, I was reading about the siege of Sarajevo and, what struck me was people would try and cross a bridge um, to get water for the day. 
and they would all come up with different um, risk management or risk assessment criteria for whether or not they're going to cross the bridge. Did somebody else get hurt the last time they crossed? And some people would say if they got hurt, they would go. If they didn't get hurt, they would go. You know, some people would look to the sky. It's cloudy. Maybe they won't see me. And so all of these individuals were trying to manage the risk environment um, individually and in isolation. And they lacked the ability to do so. They went through the process, but they were facing a collective problem that um, they needed to work together to solve. They needed government support. They needed military support. And so when we look at cybersecurity, you know, the focus on incident management is important. Um, but that's not really the the type of risk that we're facing. Um, we're facing a collective risk that we're not going to be able to do business um, safely in the future. Uh, or, you know, you're not going to be able to participate in the larger ecosystem if you're not able to do it securely. Or, you know, we had, we had a while ago, Polish Airlines was grounded for a day or so because um, their flight management system had been broken into, or their flight planning system. And so what happens in a world where you can't necessarily trust your infrastructure is going to behave the way it's supposed to from one day to the next. And so, you know, we're facing global threats, we're facing criminal threats, we're facing competency threats, you know, for people just not, you know, building things that are stable. And this isn't something that we can solve as individual businesses. The more we create enclaves and the more we try and invest in single kind of system, we're, we're going to isolate ourselves and we're going to talk about perimeter, trust perimeters and stuff like that. The world doesn't work that way. And I, those models don't work. So from a defensive standpoint, if you want to talk about managing a single incident or a series of incidents, that's really useful, but you have to expand beyond that. So whether it's not it's an epidemiological model or whether or not you're talking about how to collectively break a siege, there's something that's larger um, than the models that we've used so far that I think is at play. Yeah, it's that, it's that old metaphor of, of everyone trying to figure out what the elephant is. You know this one? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and to, to to maybe defend against the the toe of the elephant, you know. Right. You know how to you know how to attack the toe. <laughs> you don't realize how big the whole rest of the thing is, and somebody else is over there dealing with the tail. Right. And and what what all all of you are going to lose eventually, unless you work together. It's the. It was interesting. We, we had you know, the last or the most recent NIST framework workshop. We we're talking about um, efficacy. You know, you know how effective is a cybersecurity framework? And going back to language and, and larger system conversations, nobody defined what effective meant, or to who, or for what reasons, or for what costs. And so we couldn't have a conversation about what effective really meant. And when we come down to individual defenders and handling things individually, AT&T can probably throw so much money into the problem that it really looks like they're doing a good job. So can a lot of the other large companies. And if you just throw resources at it, you know, maybe you can hold the line for a while, but that's not effective per se. That's well, and that line's going to move, right? Right. And the line, and you're right. It's just going to get harder and harder and harder to do unless we have a real plan for um, limiting kind of our exposed surface area as a, as a, as a nation and as a broader global society. Um, so we need to learn to connect our defensive tactics or our strategies for being better defenders to a larger strategy for working together to, to keep the risk manageable and keep the exposure low. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the most optimistic way to wrap up um, this chat, but I feel like, um, unfortunately, you've described the problem space in a, in a way that hopefully will make people think a little bit differently about it. 
I think I think having a starting place. I, I think I, I actually I'll disagree that it wasn't optimistic. I think doing the same thing over and over and over again for more money isn't very optimistic. But going, hey, we have a starting place. We, we we've done the tactics well. Let's look at making that connection. Is something that I think is um, really a valuable thing to do, even if we're further back behind than we thought we were. Well, that's fantastic. And thanks for joining me again today, Jack. All right. Hey, thank you for having me, Courtney. You can find both of us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Jack is at Syntix Air, which is S-I-N-T-I-X-E-R-R. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 